37. Sporting face. Well, said Robot to O'Connell, despite Peel's double-faced propensities, he is a great genius, a great genius indeed, answered the Liberator. A ring, a ring. The political pugilistic scrimmage which recently took place in the House of Congress so completely coincides with the views and propensities of the Universal Scrimmage member for Bath, that he intends making a motion for the erection of a 24-foot ring on the floor of the House, for the benefit of opposition members. The Speaker, says Roebuck, will, in that case, be enabled to ascertain whether the nose or ice had it, without tellers, punches guide to the watering places, number one. Brighton if you are either in a great hurry, or tired of life, book yourself by the Brighton Railroad, and you are insured one of two things arrival in two hours, or destruction by that rapid process known in America as Immortal Smash, which brings you to the end of your journey before you get to the terminus, should you fortunately meet with the former result, and finish your trip without ending your mortal career, you find the place beset with cabs and omnibuses, which are very convenient. For if your hotel or boarding house be at the extremity of the town, you would have to walk at least half a mile but for such vehicles, and they only charge sixpence, with the additional advantage of the great chance of your luggage being lost. If you be a married man, you will go to an hotel where you can get a bed for half a guinea a night, provided you do not want it warmed, and use your own soap, but it is five shillings extra if you do. Should you be a bachelor, or an old maid, you, of course, Put up at a boarding house, where you see a great deal of good society at two guineas a week, for every third man is a captain, and every fifth woman, my lady. There, too, you observe a continual round of courtship going on, for it comes in with the coffee, and continues during every meal. Marriages, it is said, are made in heaven. Good matches are always got up at meal times in Brighton boarding houses. Brighton is decidedly a fishing town, for besides the quantity of John Dory's caught there, it is a celebrated place for Percy half-pay officers to angle in for rich widows. The bait they generally use consists of deed whiskers, and a distant relationship to some of the gentles or nobles of the land. The town itself is built upon the downs a series of hills, which those in the habit of walking over them are apt to call UPS and Downs. It consists entirely of hotels, boarding houses, and bathing machines, with a pavilion and a chain pier. The amusements are various and of a highly intellectual character, the chief of them being a walk from the Esplanade to the East Cliff, and a promenade back again from the East Cliff to the Esplanade. Donkey races are in full vogue, insomuch that the highways are thronged with interesting animals, decorated with search trappings and safety saddles, and interspersed with goat carts and hired flies. There is a library, where the visitors do everything but read, and a theater, whereas Charles Keene is now playing there they do anything but act. The ladies seem to take great delight in the sea bath, and that they may enjoy the luxury in the most secluded privacy. The machines are placed as near to the pier as possible. This is always crowded with men, who, by the aid of opera glasses, find it a pleasing pastime to watch the movements of the delicate naids who crowd the waters. Those to whom Brighton is recommended for change of air and of scene get sadly taken in for here the air like that of a barrel organ never changes, as the wind is always high. In sunshine, Brighton always looks hot, in moonshine, eternally dreary, the men are yawning all day long, and the women sitting smirking in bay windows, or walking with puppy dogs and parasols, which last they are continually opening and shutting, in short, when a man is sick of the world, 
or a maiden of forty-five has been so often crossed in love as to be obliged to leave off hoping against hope. Brighton is an excellent place to prepare him or her for a final retirement from life whether that is contemplated in the Queen's Bench, a convent, a residence among the Welsh mountains, or the monastery of Lotrap, a month's probation in Brighton, at the height of the season, being well calculated to make any such change not only endurable, but agreeable. Custom House Sale, Lot 1, a port, for sale, Torwalson's Byron, rich in beauty, because his country owes, and will not pay, duty, the heir of APPLEBIDE, Chapter VI, treats of chalk and QUA drillogy, entirely disgusted with his unsuccessful appeal to the enlightened British public assembled in the front of his residence, and which had produced effects so contrary to what he had conceived would be the result, Agamemnon called a committee of his household to determine on the most advisable proceedings to be adopted for remedying the evils resulting from the unexpected pyrotechnic display of the morning. The carpet was spoiled the house was impregnated with the sooty effluvia, and the company was expected to arrive at nine o'clock. What was to be done? Betty suggested the burning of brown paper and scrubbing the carpet. John, that's a fetida and sawdust, Mrs. Wadley got, pastilles and chalking the floor as the latter remedy seemed most compatible with the gentility of their expected visitors. Immediate measures were taken for carrying them into effect. A dozen cheese plates were disposed upon the stairs, each furnished with little pyramids of fragrance. Old John, who was troubled with an asthma, was deputed to superintend them, and nearly coughed himself into a fit of apoplexy in the strenuous discharge of his duty. Whilst these indoor remedial appliances were in progress, Agamemnon was hurrying about in a hack cab to discover a designer in chalk, and at length was fortunate enough to secure the own artist of the celebrated crown and anchor. Mr. Smear was a shrewd man, as well as an excellent artist, and when he perceived the very peculiar position of things, he forcibly enumerated all the difficulties which presented themselves, and which could only be surmounted by a large increase of remuneration. You see, sir, said Mr. Smear that wherever that air water has been it's left a dampness behind it, the moisture constant upon such a dampness must be evaporated by ever so many applications of the warming pan. The steam which arises from this operation, combined with the extra heart required to hide them to black spots in the middle, will make the job come to a one-on-one, independently of the chalk. Agamemnon had nothing left but compliance with Mr. Smear's demand, and one warming and three stupans, filled with live coals were soon engaged in what Mr. Smear called the Uaporting Department. As soon as the boards were sufficiently dry, Mr. Smear commenced operations. In each of the four corners of the room he described the diagram of a coral and bells, connecting them with each other by graceful festoons of blue chalk ribbon tied in large true lover's knots in the center. Having thus completed a frame, he proceeded, after sundry contour tie-ons of the facial muscles, to the execution of the great design. Having described an ellipse of red chalk, he tastefully inserted within it a perfect representation of the interior of an infant's mouth in an early stage of dentition, whilst a graceful letter seemed to keep the gums apart to allow of this artistical exhibition. Proudly did Mr. Smear cast his small grey eyes on Agamemnon, and challenge him, as it were, to a laudatory acknowledgement of his genius, but as his patron remained silent, Mr. Smear determined to speak out. Heart has done her best language must do the rest. I am now only awaiting for the martyr. What shall I say, sir? Welcome is as good as anything, in my opinion, replied Columption. Welcome, 
ejaculated sneer, a servile himitation of a general illumination idea. Sir, we must be original. Will you leave it to me? Willingly, said Agamemnon, and with many inward protestations against parties in general and his own in particular, he left Mr. Sneer and his imagination together. The great artist in chalk paced the room for some minutes, and then slapped his left thigh, in confirmation of the existence of some brilliant idea. The result was soon made apparent on the boards of the drawing room, where the following inscription attested the immensity of Sneer's genius, partake of our dental delight. The guinea was instantly paid, but Columpsion was for a length of time in a state of uncertainty as to whether Mr. Sneer's talents were ornamental or disfigurative. Nine o'clock arrived, and with it a rumble of vehicles, and an agitation of knocker, that were extremely exhilarating to the heretofore exhausted and distressed family at twenty-four. We shall not attempt to particularize the arrivals, as they were precisely the same set as our readers had invariably met at routes of the second class for these last five years. There was the young gentleman in an orange waistcoat, bilious complexion, and hair petrarch, only gingered, and so also were the two misses, in blue gauze, looped up with coral, and that fair-haired girl who detested fairy, and those black eyes, whose lustrous beauty made such havoc among the undenanted hearts of the youthful bows, but, reader, you must know the set that must have visited the apple bites, all went merry as a marriage bell and we feel that we cannot do better than assist future commentators by giving a minute analysis of a word which so frequently occurs in the fashionable literature of the present day that doubtlessly in after time many anxious inquiries and curious conjectures would be occasioned, but for the service we are about to confer on posterity for the pages of Punch are immortal by a description of a quadrille, which is a dance particularly fashionable in the 19th century, in order to render our details perspicuous and lucid, we will suppose one. A gentleman in tight pantaloons and a tip. 2. Ditto in loose ditto. And a camellia japonica in the buttonhole of his coat. 3. Ditto in a crimson waistcoat. And a penduliting eyeglass. 4. Ditto in violent wristbands. And an alarming eruption of buttons. Also. 1. A young lady in pink gauze and freckles. 2. Ditto in book muslin and marabous. 3. Ditto with blonde and a slight cast. 4. Ditto in her 24th year. And black satin. The four gentlemen present themselves to the four ladies, and having smirked and begged the honor, the four pairs take their station in the room in the following order, the tip and the freckles, the camellia japonica, the crimson waistcoat, and the and the marabous, slight cast, the violent wristbands and the black satin, during eight bars of music, tip, crimson, camellia, and wristbands, bow to freckles, slight cast, marabous, and black satin, who curtsy in return and then commence L.A.P.A. and E.A.L.O.N. by performing an intersecting figure that brings all parties exactly where they were, which joyous circumstance is celebrated by bobbing for four bars opposite to each other, and then indulging in a universal twirl which apparently offends the ladies, who seize hold of each other's hands only to a leave go again, and be twirled round by the opposite gentleman, who, having secured his partner, promenades her half round to celebrate his victory and then returns to his place with his partner, performing a similar in-and-out movement as that which commenced low pendulum. Lit is a much more respectful operation, referring to our previous arrangement. Wristbands and freckles would advance and retire then they would take two hops and a jump to the right, then two hops and a jump to the left then cross over, and their hop and jump the same number of times and come back again, and having celebrated their return by bobbing for four bars, they twirled their partners again 
and commence L-A-P-O-U-L-E. The crimson waistcoat and marabouts would shake hands with their right, and then cross over, and having shaken hands again with the left, come back again. They then would invite the camellia and the slight cast to join them, and perform a kind of wild Indian dance all in a row, after which they all walk to the sides they had no business upon, and then Crimson runs round Marabou, and taking his partner's hand, i.e. the slight cast, introduces her to Camellia and Marabou, as though they had never met before. This introduction is evidently disagreeable, for they instantly retire, and then rush past each other, as furiously as they can to their respective places, L.A.T.R.E.N.I.S.E. is evidently intended to, trot out, the dancers, Freckles and Black Satin shake hands as they did in Lo Pendulon, and then Freckles trot step out twice, and crosses over to the opposite side to have a good look at him, having satisfied her curiosity, she then, in company with Black Satin, crosses over to have a stare at the violent wristbands, in contrast with Tip who wriggles over, and join him, and then, Without saying a word to each other, Bob, and our world as inlet, L.A.P.A.S.T.O.R.A.L.E. seems to be an inversion of Lotrenias, except that in 19 cases out of 20, the waistcoat, tip, camellia and wristbands, seem to undergo intense mental torture, for if there be such a thing as, poetry of motion, pastoral must be the, inferno of dancing, L.A. finale commences with a circular riot, which leads to it, the ladies then join hands, and endeavor to imitate the graceful evolutions of a windmill, occasionally grinding the corns of their partners, who frantically rush in with the quixotic intention of stopping them. A general shuffling about then takes place, which terminates in a bow, a bob, and, allow me to offer you some refreshment. Now, hero, we have devoted so much space to the quadrille, that we have left none for the supper, which being a cold one, we'll keep till next week. The gentleman's own book. We are ashamed to ask our readers to refer to our last article under the title of the Gentleman's Own Book, for the length of time which has elapsed almost accuses us of disinclination for our task, or weariness in catering for the amusement of our subscribers, but September September, with all its allurements of flood and field its gathering of honest old friends its tales of bygone seasons, and its glorious promises of the present must plead our apology for abandoning our pen and rushing back to old associations which haunt us like we know that we are forgiven, so shall proceed at once to the consideration of the ornaments and pathology of clothes. The ornaments are those parts of the external decorations which are intended either to embellish the person or garment, or to notify the pecuniary superiority of the wearer. Amongst the former are to be included buttons, braids, and mustaches, amongst the latter, chains, rings, studs, canes, watches, and above all, those pocket talismans, purses, there are also riding whips and spurs, which may be considered as implying the possession of quadrupedal property, of buttons, in these days of innovation when brummagem button makers affect a taste and elaboration of design a true gentleman should be most careful in the selection of this dull set utile contrivance, buttons which resemble gilt acidulated drops, or ratafia cakes, or those which are illustrative of the national emblems the rose, shamrock, and thistle tied together like a bunch of faded watercresses, or those which are commemorative of coronations, royal marriages, births, and christenings, chartist liberations, the success of liberal measures, and such like occasions, or those which would serve for vignettes for the sporting magazine, or those which at a distance bear some resemblance to the royal arms, but which, upon closer inspection, prove to be bunches of endive, 
surmounted by a crown which the Herald's College does not recognize, or those which have certain letters upon them, as the initials of clubs which are never heard of in Street James's, as the USC the Universal Shopman's Club, TYC the Young Tailor's Club, LSD the Linen Drapers Society and the like. All these are to be fashionably eschewed, the Regimental, the various hunts, the yacht clubs, and the basket pattern, are the only buttons of Birmingham birth which can be allowed to associate with the buttonholes of a gentleman. The restrictions on silk buttons are confined chiefly to magnitude. They must not be so large as an opera ticket, nor so small as a silver penny. Of braids, this ornament, when worn in the street, is patronized exclusively by Polish refugees, theatrical Jews, opera dancers, and boarding house fortune hunters. Of mustaches, the mustache depends for its effect entirely upon its adaptation to the expression of the features of the wearer. The small, or mustache was, should only appear in conjunction with tussaud, or waxwork complexions, and then only provided the teeth are excellent, for should the dental conformation be of the same tint, the mustaches would only provoke observation. The German, or full hearth brush, should be associated with what Mr. Ducrow would designate a cream and everybody else a drab countenance, and should never be resorted to, except in conformity with regimental requisitions, or for the capture of an Irish widow, as they are generally indigenous to below and the bench, and are known amongst tailors and that class of clothier victims as bad debts, or the insolvency regulation, and operate with them as an insuperable bar to the perfect, or heart meshes, are those in which each particular hair has its particular place, and must be of a silky texture and not of a bristly consistency, like a worn-out toothbrush, neither must they be of a bright red, bearing a striking resemblance to two young spring radishes, the Barbio Bomb, or Muncian fringe, should only be worn when a gentleman is desirous of obtaining notoriety, and prefers trusting to his external embellishments in preference to his intellectual acquirements, on tips, tips are an abomination to which no gentleman can lend his countenance, they are a shabby and mangy compromise for mustaches, and are principally sported by the genus of clerks, who, having strong hirsute predilections, small salaries, and sober-minded masters, hang a tassel on the chin instead of a balance on the upper lip, our space warns us to conclude, and, as a fortnight's indolence is not the strongest stimulant to exertion, we willingly drop our pen, and taking the hint and a cigar, indulge in a voluminous cloud, and a lusty, happy to second nature, if the ARGU's O'Connor always attends public meetings, dressed in a complete suit of festion, he could not select a better emblem of his writings in the Northern Star, than the material he has chosen for his habiliments, the substance and the shadow, we understand that Sir Robert Peel has sent for the fasting man, with the intention of seeing how far his system may be acted upon for the relief of the community, say it was Emmy, Jim, you rascal, get up, get up, and be hanged to you, sir, don't you hear somebody hammering and pelting away at the street door knocker, like the ghost of a dead postman with a tertian ague, open it, see what's the matter, will you, yes, sir, responded the tame tiger of the excited and highly respectable Adolphus Cossey, shiveringly emerging from beneath the bedclothes he had diligently wrapped round his aching head, to deaden the incessant clamor of the iron which was entering into the soul of his sleep, a hastily performed toilet, in which the more established method of encasing the lower man with the front of the garment to the front of the wearer, was curiously reversed, and the capture of the left slipper, which, as the weakest goes to the wall, the right foot had thrust itself into, 
was scarcely effected, ere another series of knocks at the door, and batch of invectives from Mr. Adolphus Cossetti, hurried the partial sacrificer to the graces, at a dirty pace, over the cold stone staircase, to discover the cause of the confounded uproar. The door was opened a confused jumble of unintelligible mutterings aggravated the eager ears of the shivering Adolphus. Losing all patience, he exclaimed, in a tone of thunder, What is it, you villain? Can't you speak? Yes, sir. In course I can. Then why don't you, you imp of mischief? I'm a-going to, do it at once let me know the worst. Is it fire, murder, or thieves? Neither, sir. It's a one, with a dark lantern. What? In the name of persecution and the new police, does a one, with a dark lantern, want with me, please, sir, Mr. Brown Bankham has give him half a crown, well, you little ruffian, what's that to me, why, sir, he guffed him to come here, and ask you, here policeman a one, with the dark lantern, took up the conversation, just to step down to the station us, and bail him therefrom, for what, being very drunk and calm and overcome, Surely and Udashius Obstroplus, continued the alphabetically and numerically distinguished conservator of the public peace. How did he get there? On a weary heavily laden stretcher. The deuce take the mad fool, muttered the disturbed housekeeper, then added, in a louder tone, Ask the policeman in and request him to take anything you please. Sir, it is rather a cold night, but as we're all in a hurry, suppose it's something short. Sir, now the original proposition commencing with the word, take, was meant by its propounder to achieve its climax in, a seat on one of the hall chairs, but the liquid inferences of A1, with a dark lantern, had the desired effect, and induced a command from Mr. Adolphus Cossetti to the small essential essence of condensed validism in the person of Jim Pipkin, to produce the case bottles for the discussion of the said A1, with the dark lantern, who gained considerably in the good opinion of Mr. James Pipkin by requesting the favor of his company in the Bibashu's advocation he so much delighted in a one having expressed a decided conviction that, anywhere but on the collar of his coat, or the date of monthly imprisonments, his distinguishing number was the most unpleasant and insocial of the whole multiplication table, further proceeded to illustrate his remarks by proposing glasses two and three, to the great delight and inebriation of the small James Pipkin, who was suddenly aroused from a dreamy contemplation of two policemen, and increased service of case bottles and liquor glasses, by a sound box on the ear, and a stern command to retire to his own proper dormitory the one coming from the hand, the other from the lips, of his annoyed master, who then and there departed, under the guidance of A1, with the dark lantern, after passing various lanes and weary ways, the station was reached, and there, in the full plenitude of glorious drunkenness, lay his friend, the identical Mr. Brown Duncan, who, in the emphatic words of the inspector, was declared to be, just about as far gone as any gentleman's son need wish to be. What's the charge? Commenced Mr. Adolphus Cossey. Eleven shillings a bottle. Take it out o' thought, and de in the expense. Interposed and hiccuffed the overtaken brown bankham. Drunk, disorderly, and very abusive. Read the inspector. Go to blazes, shouted bankham, and then commenced a very vague edition of, God save the queen, which, by some extraordinary, sliding scale, finally developed the last verse of, Nix my dolly, which again, at the mention of the, stone jug, flew off into a very apocryphal version of the, bumper of burgundy, the lines, upstanding, and covered, appeared at once to superinduce the opinion that greater effect would be given to his performance by complying with both propositions, 
in attempting to assume the perpendicular, Mr. Brown Duncan was signally frustrated, as the result was a more perfect development of his original horizontal recumbency, assumed at the conclusion of a very vigorous fall. To make up for this deficiency, the suggestion as to the singer appearing uncovered, was achieved with more force than propriety, by Mr. Brown Duncan's nearly displacing several of the inspector's front teeth, by a blow from his violently hurled head at the head of that respectable functionary. What would have followed, it is impossible to say, but at this moment Mr. Adolphus Cossay's bail was accepted, he being duly bound down, in the sum of twenty pounds, to produce Mr. Brown Duncan at the magistrate's office by eleven o'clock of the following forenoon. This being settled, in spite of a vigorous opposition, with the assistance of five half-crowns, four policemen, the driver of, and hackney coach number 3141, Mr. Brown Duncan was conveyed to his own proper lodgings, and there left, with one boot and a splitting headache, to do duty for a counterpane, he vehemently opposing every attempt to make him a deposit between the sheets. Seven o'clock on the following morning found Mr. Adolphus Cossetti at the bedside of the violently snoring and stupidly obfuscated Brown Duncan. In vain he pinched, shook, shouted, and swore, inarticulate grunts and apoplectic denunciations against the disturber of his rest were the only answers to his urgent appeals as to the necessity of Mr. Brown Duncan's getting ready to appear before the magistrate. Visions of contempt of court, forfeited bail, and consequent disbursements flitted before the mind of the agitated Mr. Adolphus Cossey. Ten o'clock came, Duncan seemed to snore the louder and sleep the sounder. What was to be done? Why, nothing but to get up an impromptu influenza, and try his rhetoric on the presiding magistrates of the bench. Influenced by this determination, Mr. Adolphus Cossey started for that den of thieves and magistrates in the neighborhood of Bow Street, but Mr. Adolphus Cossey's feelings were anything but enviable, though by no means a straight-lacked man. He had an instinctive abhorrence of anything that appeared a blackguard transaction. Nothing but a kind wish to serve a friend would have induced him to appear within a mile of such a wretched place, but the thing was now unavoidable. So he put the best face he could on the matter, made his way to the clerk of the court, and there, in a low whisper, began his explanation. That being how Mr. Brown Duncan, at this moment the crier shouted, Duncan, where's Duncan? I am here, said Mr. Adolphus Cossey. Here to, step inside. Duncan, shouted a sturdy auxiliary, and with considerable manual exertion and remarkable agility, he gave the unfortunate Adolphus a peculiar twist that at once deposited him behind the bar and before the bench. I beg to state, commenced the agitated and innocent Adolphus. Silence, prisoner, roared the crier. Will you allow me to say, again commenced Adolphus, hold your tongue, vociferated P-74. I must and will be heard. Young man, said the magistrate, laying down the paper, you are doing yourself no good, be quiet, clerk, read the charge, after some piano mumbling, the words, drunk abusive disorderly incapable taking care of self-stretcher station house bail, were shouted out in the most fortissimo manner, at the end of the reading, all eyes were directed to the well-dressed and gentlemanly looking Adolphus, he appeared to excite universal sympathy, what have you to say, young man, why? Your worship, the charge is true, but, oh, never mind your buts, will you ever appear in the same situation again? Upon my soul I won't, but, there, then, that will do, I like your sincerity, but don't swear, pay one shilling, and you are discharged, will your worship allow me, I have no time, sir, next case, 
but I must explain. Next case. Hold your jaw. This way. And the same individual who had jerked Mr. Adolphus Cossetti into the dock, rejerked him into the middle of the court. The shilling was paid, and, amid the laughter of the idlers at his anti-teetotal habits, he made the best of his way from the scene of his humiliation. As he rushed round the corner of the street, a peal of laughter struck upon his ears, and there, in full feather, as sober as ever, stood Mr. Brown Duncan, enjoying the joke beyond all measure. Indignation took possession of Mr. Adolphus Cossetti's bosom. He demanded to know the cause of this strange conduct, stating that his character was forever compromised. Not at all, coolly rejoined the unmoved Duncan. We are all subject to accidents. You certainly were in a scrape, but I think none the worse of you, and, if it's any satisfaction, you may say it was me. Say it was you. Why it was, capital, upon my life. Do you hear him, Smith? How well he takes a cue, but stick to it, old fellow. I don't think you'll be believed, but say it was me. Mr. Brown Duncan was perfectly right. Mr. Adolphus Cossetti was not believed, for some time he told the story as it really was, but to no purpose. The indefatigable Brown was always appealed to by mutual friends. His answer invariably was, why? Cossetti's a steady fellow, am not, it might injure him. Defy report, therefore I gave him leave to say it was me. And that was all the thanks Mr. Adolphus Cossetti ever got for bailing friend. If USBO's the political Euclid, wherein are considered the relations of place, you are the best mode of getting a place for your relations, being a complete guide to the art of legislative and You are, how to estimate the value of a vote upon Wigentory measures, the whole adapted to the use of honorable members, by Lord P. A. Elimiarustiolan late professor of Toryism, but now lecturer on Wiggery to the College of Street Stevens. Book High Definitions. A point in politics is that which always has place in view, but no particular party. A line in politics is interest without principle. The extremities of a line are loaves and fishes. A right line is that which lies evenly between the ministerial and opposition benches. A superficies is that which professes to have principle, but has no consistency. The extremities of a superficies are expediencies.